Psalms 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And then Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed against he- from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What's the truth? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. I want to talk as we start this morning about a simple little concept here I ran across, seeing the invisible in what is visible. Seeing the invisible in what is visible, and why I did that. Um, and it's this concept here, let me just read a little quote here. Um, Uh, We can see God who is invisible in his creation that is visible. Matthew McCullough in his book, Remember Death, The Surprising Surprising Path to Living Hope, illustrates this for us quite vividly. He speaks of a negative space portrait where where what is there is meant to draw attention to what is not there. What is visible helps you you see what is invisible. Here's two examples. I'll put them on the screen. The FedEx logo. Do you see what's hidden in there you're supposed to see? Hidden, hidden away in that logo? Anybody know what it is? An arrow, right. Right, there's the arrow. FedEx. And that's a negative space portrait. So you see the invisible in the visible. Here's another one, and of course we know this one really well, but you can see the peacock amidst all those colors there. You see the invisible peacock in the visible colors. Thought that was pretty fascinating. We're in week four of our series, Defending the Faith. We're talking about, really, in this series, uh, rational answers to a reasonable faith. Like, why is it rational to have faith in God, to trust the Bible? And that's the reality. Our key verse, one of our key verses is Jude 1.3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so we're going to build off where we left off last week. In this series so far, we've talked about a dependable God, a reliable word, and last week a glorious creation, and that's where we're at today, thinking about a glorious creation again, and we're going to find the cross in creation today. Today, we're going to find the cross in the creation account, and this will be really powerful. And it's something I've really never done before. I've never really thought about this. Like, can I find the cross in creation? We'll look for it today. We will find it. Last week, talking about this, you know, this, this, this uh, glorious creation, we said the best way to interpret creation is a biblical and literal interpretation of Genesis 1 through 11. They are literal and historical, not metaphorical, or they're not a poem. Some people think the first 11 verses is a Hebrew poem, and, and you know, they interpret it this way. Part of that then allows them to work in uh, an earth that is you know, maybe billions of years old. And uh, we said last week that really is not the best way to interpret it. And it has a negative impact on society, and we'll see that again this morning. This morning, we're going to consider the gospel argument, and we're going to look for the cross in creation. It's, it's interesting, you know, there's 4,000 years, really, of time in the, in the Bibles. From the time of uh, Genesis to the time of Jesus, 4,000 years. Um, and then there's a, that little bit of time after Jesus there. And in those 4,000 years, there's two weeks that stand out, don't they? Aren't there just two weeks that stand out? What are those two weeks? The week of creation and, the, and what would be the second week? Passion week, right. Thank you, Jan. Passion week. So creation week and passion week, those are like the two big weeks. Like half of John deals with, you know, passion week. And so it's just really powerful, and we'll see today how we can find the Passion Week even in the Creation Week, in what God was doing back in creation. And we'll see again, as we talked about earlier in the series, the Bible kind of supports the Bible. The Bible kind of proves the Bible. There, There are ways you can do that, ways you can't do that, but there's ways you can do that. And we see again that these two events will support each other, and that's really, really powerful. We said last week our big idea was in creation, the who question is more important than the how question. And while the world and while modern science is all concerned with how did this all happen, how did this all come to be, the Bible says there's things that we can't understand about the how. There's things we can't understand about our creator we need to be consumed with the who question and who is this God this amazing God that did this as I said creation is not intended to be a scientific study but a theological study 
And, and I never thought of that really until I got into these uh, study the last couple of weeks, how true that really is. And it's oh so true this morning. We'll drive this point even more home this morning. Here's today's big idea. The Redeemer is seen in the creation. Like, yeah, we, we would think the Creator is seen in the creation, but I'm going to tell you the Redeemer, the one who redeemed you, who bought you back from sin, death, and hell, is seen in the creation in fact we could add this to it really god is the only one capable of redeeming or buying back his creation like he created us all and then we of course came the fall and we have all sinned we're all fallen short of god's glory and we all need to be redeemed and bought back and he's the only one the one who created us is the only one capable of paying the price to redeem us so we're going to jump in here we have two areas of focus this morning Two areas of focus. First, how creation points to the cross. And three gospel arguments for the creation account in Scripture, for a literal historical creation account in Scripture. Start in Genesis 3, 1 through 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And this is our first, really, our first argument. When we think about arguments today, the first argument for a literal creation account is this, it's the curse of death. It is the curse of death. I never thought of this, never considered this until the last couple of weeks. And we will see that the literal creation account proves a very young earth and when we look at redemption in creation we'll see this come to be remember the the modern science says the earth is four to five billion years old the bible says the earth is six thousand years old there's a big discrepancy there and so here's the issue the issue is fossils right the evolutionary view of fossils creates a serious theological problem for us creates a serious theological problem that i had never considered now let's unpack it like this. Two simple questions for you. First of all, here's the first question. Where do fossils come from? Dead things. Where do dead things come from? Where do dead things come from? Where do dead things come from? Where does death come from? Sin. All death is rooted in sin. We just read it. We just read it back there. Did God say you can't eat? You know, he said we, we can't eat it or we will die. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the trees that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So here's the theory, or the, the, not the theory, the reality. Sin leads to death, which leads to fossils. Sin leads to death, which leads to fossils. And this is where the major theological problem comes in. How do you have fossils that are millions of years old when the first sin is 6,000 years old? You can't reconcile that. And you can't move the date of Adam and Eve. You can't like just say, okay, well, Adam and Eve were a lot older. Because then you mess up the whole genealogy of the scriptures that point us right back to Christ. So there is a serious contradiction when we begin mingling evolution and creation, and I just never thought that, never, never, never struck me. Never took it that, never thought to consider that. And it does serious damage to our biblical and theological foundation. Now there's one escape hatch. I'll deal with this escape hatch because I believe this. For most of my adult life, I was a pretty big, pretty big proponent of what's called the gap theory. What's the gap theory? Anybody know what the gap theory is? Well, the gap theory is simply this, that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And then Satan rebelled against God, was kicked out of heaven, fell to earth, and basically a cataclysmic event happened on earth. And the earth was left in ruins, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so really, what we have in Genesis 1-1 is the original creation, we have the fall, the disruption of all things, and then in Genesis 1-2, we have the recreation of the earth 6,000 years ago. And that, that you can, together, you can rectify billions of years of creation. I used to always kind of buy into this, not because I was worried about buying billions of years or because I was worried about the science. I just thought it was plausible and it made sense. But as I studied the last couple of weeks, I've come to realize that's a pretty flawed uh, pretty flawed idea. The ICR 
argues, this is the Institute for Creation Research, the ICR argues that the geological ages and the fossil records actually line up more with a rapid cataclysmic event like the flood than millions of years of death and suffering. So here's one quote that they share with us by Henry Morris here. If the gap theory were valid, it would mean that God had instituted an ages-long system of suffering and death over the world before there were any, ever any men and women to place in dominion over that world and then suddenly destroy it in a violent cata, uh, cataclysm. They, it, would an, why would an omnipotent, merciful God do such a wasteful and cruel thing as that? They cannot blame Satan either. According to the gap theory, the ge- geological ages with their eons of cruelty and waste took place even before Satan's sin. God himself would be solely responsible for the whole uh, debacle if it really happened. I thought that was really, it just really struck me. And then it reminded me, of course, of this verse here in Romans 8, 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so I thought about that. Am I supposed to reason, I guess, that the earth was really groaning in travail and then it was set free for a couple of days you know, or whatever, set free when God recreated everything and then it went right back into subjection and back to groaning in pain and that just doesn't even make logical sense. It doesn't make logical sense. The the fact is, we talk about redemption. Jesus redeemed everything on the cross. He redeemed the earth. Like the earth is groaning in pain. That's why we have earthquakes and we have floods and we have violent storms and the earthquake is groaning. It's under the curse of sin. But it's been redeemed and one day there will be a new heavens and new earth and God will set everything right again. But the question is, before Genesis, before the Adam and Eve, was there a world that the a point where the world was then under the subjection of, again, sin and destruction and death. It was set free and then put back in that position. I just don't think that even makes sense. In the end, a simple and literal reading of Genesis 1 through 11 leaves our theology intact, the world in place, and the science is answered. Because actually, if you look, and you look at Christian scientists like the ICR, they'll tell you the flood in Noah's day in Genesis 6, actually answers the geological ages and all of the fossil records can be rectified even better. They say that those fossils would only be intact if something had happened immediately, not over millions and billions of years. So the curse of death becomes a powerful proponent here for the creation uh, count. So the gap theory is less than unlikely. And I'm serious. I mean, I, for 25 years, most of my, when I first heard it and, and read it, I thought, boy, that makes sense. And now I see how flawed that really is. Okay, today's big idea, the Redeemer is seen in the creation. The Redeemer is seen in the creation. He's a part of it all. The creation, the literal creation, leaves space for the Redeemer to come and redeem us from sin. Um, now here, I, I asked you this question earlier, right? About um, those flowers over there were they fake so here's some flowers out in the field now how many would say are these flowers alive or are they dead those flowers on the screen huh huh well i mean okay just pretend they were real because i wanted to bring in real flowers and i wasn't able to i mean not a picture okay so i'm saying i do i should have brought that in i know I was going to bring some flowers. We got our hanging baskets outside still, and they're just about on their last legs. I almost brought them in because they're still living, but they don't look real good. (laughs) But anyway, I'm sure most people would look at that flower and say that flower is alive. So let's move in our second point from the curse of death. Let's move from death to life. And let me tell you something about this plant because there is something about this plant I had never considered before until, again, I studied this week. This is another fascinating article from from the ICR, the Institute for Creation Research. And um, let me just read a few quotes here out of this article. Evolutionary dogma insists that everything that exists is connected to the basic elements of the universe. Evolutionists claim that life is connected through a common ancestor in the distant eons through the first cell that became enabled to reproduce itself by the random interplay of atoms. 
According to that definition, life is anything that can reproduce. Thus, everything that grows on our planet is our brother, and humanity is nothing more than a highly evolved arrangement of organic chemicals. And what I was fascinating, they were saying that even with all this push of evolution over the years, this goes back a few years, but, but, but about 50% of people today believe that God created mankind and did so in the past 10,000 years. Meaning, meaning most people can intuitively and observationally look at the planet and say, you know what, we are different from like, say, that plant that I put on the screen, that picture. He goes on here. The challenge comes with Christian scholarship. Groups such as BioLogos, and maybe you've heard of Francis Collins. <clears throat> I'm not a big fan of his, but. And a growing list of Christian schools and universities have, brought, have bought into the, into the terrible, into the, have brought into the terrible lie that plants are just as much alive as humanity, that we kill plants before we eat them. While the, idea may, while the idea, idea may seem innocuous, after all, we do kill animals before we eat them, the implications and applications are enormous. If we do indeed kill, take the life of plants as we consume them, then God himself authorized that killing. He specifically designed plants as food in Genesis 1.29 and drew a strong distinction between food and the life of everything else, Genesis 1.30. If God authorized the killing of plants, then God designed death into the very essence of the creation and pronounced it all very good. Here's the heresy. If God designed death into creation, then death is as good as all other factors. And the atheistic evolutionary doctrine is right. Death is the good force that brings about the ultimate finest or fittest in our universe death therefore is not the wages of sin and our lord jesus death was not necessary for salvation it was just the wasted effort of a deluded martyr and this is where the second argument comes in then the lord god formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature we go from the curse of death to the breath of life second argument for a literal historical creation account in the bible is the breath of life the article, the, the, the individual, this Henry Morse who wrote that article, def, defines life for us in four ways. It is unique, it, is a, it, is, it has independent movement, it has soul and spirit, and life has blood. And so I really stopped and thought about, so that the point is that plant there, right? I could bring a live plant in here, but it's not really alive. Like we say it's alive. Oh, that plant's dead. That plant's alive. And I understand, like even Jesus illustratively said, you know, that the, the seed must go on the ground and die. To, but, but that's not the same as you and me being alive. That's kind of like, well, I have a dead battery. Like you can have things that are dead, but it's not this, plants are not the same as you and me. They don't have involuntary movement. They don't have blood. They don't have the breath of life in them. And I'm not a, an expert on evolutionary theory, but here's the question, the common sense question I was left with. In evolutionary theory, where does the breath of life come from? I mean, the plants, I mean, we're, we're like, we just all evolved like the plants and the trees and we're all like here, you know, and it's like, but some of us started breathing. Like, how did that happen? Why didn't the plants start breathing, uh, start to breathing or bleeding for that matter even? pretty interesting the bible tells us the bible explains that all creation all of the plant life was created after their own kind all the animals after their own kind and then we were created in god's image like god came and breathed the breath of life into us the bible talks a lot about this breath of life we talked last week about how god created spoke the world into existence with his words he said let it be and it, he in, in genesis 1 there he said and he said and it happened let there be light and there was light and it was good. Throughout the Bible, it tells us that God spoke and the word came in to, the world came into existence. But then it very intentionally tells us this, that God breathed the breath of life into us. Genesis 6, 17, here's what it says. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So we see here that even the animal kingdom has the breath of life to some extent in them. 722, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died when the great flood came. So even the animals have the breath of life, but there is a distinction between even the animals and you and me. Here's some more. 
Here's some more testimony, and I'll, I'll be the first to say this is well beyond my pay grade, probably everybody's pay grade, trying to figure this out. So, so if, if I inspire you to go home and study this more on your own, that's, then I've done my job. And I'm just going to tell you what the Scripture says, and there's some things in here that just were fascinating to me. Job's testimony. Job says, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, and that's not the Holy Spirit because that's a small s, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit Isaiah's testimony thus says the God the Lord who created the heavens and and stretched them out who spread out the earth and what comes from it who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it like he gives me his breath and he gives me his spirit and we see a concept emerge in these verses that there's a relationship between God's breath and God's spirit when God breathed life into us here it is when God breathed life into us he breathed his spirit into us now, his spirit, not the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know, how to, understand, I don't know how, to un- under, how to unpack that, but there's something about that that I think is pretty fascinating. It's like somehow we got a portion of the heavenly, eternal spirit of God, not the Holy Spirit. Keep reading here, Elihu. If he should set his heart to it, Elihu is the one who came and defended Job when he was being falsely accused and attacked. If he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. So if, he, if, if God took back his spirit and his breath from all of us, well, all, all creation would stop breathing and perish. And we as humans would return, would return to dust. What does that say? God God shaped us out of the dust, formed us out of the dust of the ground and breathed the spirit of life into us, right there. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. So we're like out of the dust of the ground, but if if he took his breath, if he took his spirit out of us, we would just go back to being dust. This isn't my, this isn't me. This is, this is the scriptures and I never saw any of this stuff before. Ecclesiastes 12, 7 supports this here, Solomon's testimony. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. This is when we die. I don't understand that either. When you die, the Spirit goes to God, and the dust goes to the earth, and we are all accountable to God when we die with what we did with Christ, whether we're going to be saved or spend eternity separated from God, eternally alive or eternally dead. But here's the point. I think that this is then how we were created in the image of God. Because God took us specifically compared to the animals who have the breath of life. But he took us specifically, it says, and breathed into us the breath of life and breathed into us his eternal spirit. And now we are in the image of God. And even the atheist walking the planet today is in the image of God. Paul tells us we only exist because of God. Solomon's testimony, Ecclesiastes 3.11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also he has, set, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to its end. We are eternal beings because God has breathed his breath of life and some aspect of his spirit into us. Now here's the Here's where this gets kind of confusing, right, when you're unpacking this, because before salvation and because of sin, we are spiritually dead. So I've got some portion of a spirit in me that God gave me that's eternal, that's somehow related to him, and before I'm saved and because of sin, I'm dead inside. Like, I have no communion, no fellowship with God. I don't have spiritual desires. and I don't totally understand that. The spirit that comes from God, that aligns with God, that communes with God is dead because of sin. I have no fellowship or communion. And I then need to be regenerated. Here's Paul's testimony. Ephesians 2.1. New King James Version. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Who did that? The spirit of Christ did that. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So when you get saved, you are now alive to God. Praise the Lord, hallelujah. That's just amazing, that is just incredible. I read a fascinating article this week when you think about, well, just, just follow this here a minute. So upon creation, you were created in God's image when he breathed the breath of his life and some aspect of his spirit into you, which is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to us when we are saved and he seals us for all eternity. So 
That's kind of what's going on in these verses here. And again, the Redeemer is seen in the creation. The one who is going to redeem us is seen in the creation. And seeing a literal historical creation is is necessary to understand the gospel. So I have seen and read a fascinating article a few times lately. And so I went looking for that article online. And it does seem to carry some weight within the Jewish community. It's one of those too-good-to-be-true stories, but I'm going to share it with you here because it does seem like it maybe holds some validity. The breath of God is the name of God. I think that's on your handout. The breath of God is the name of God. The breath of God is first mentioned in the Bible when God breathed life into the clay specimen that he formed. And Adam, man, became a living soul. When people begin to panic over some incident or circumstance or show signs of high anxiety, they are often told to take a deep breath. When Moses met with the divine creator at the burning bush, he audaciously asked God for the Lord's name. Who will I say has sent me? God gave his unpronounceable name, Yahweh. The Hebrew consonants made the name unpronounceable, but Hebrew scholars introduced two vowels to Y-H-W-H to make it Yahweh or Yahweh. Today we refer to God's name as Jehovah or more correctly in the Hebrew, Yahweh. Jewish sages associated this name with the sound of breath. Y-H-W-H are Hebrew consonants that represent breathing sounds or aspirant consonants. In the Hebrew alphabet, the Yod or the Y is pronounced like Yat and the letter H is He. The V or W is the letter Vav. The combination of these letters produces a breathing sound. It is profound that God's name is associated with breath. Most people are familiar with the fact that when a baby is born, the midwife or the doctor whacks the child on the behind for the child to take its first breath. It seems that it is necessary for the newborn babe to whisper God's name at the beginning of life. At the beginning and at the end of life, we whisper his divine name. When we die, we breathe out our last breath and again whisper God's name. Isn't it ironic that even atheists who deny God's existence inadvertently and obliviously whisper God's name every time they breathe. And Paul told those individuals there at Athens, he told them that in, in Christ we live and move and have our breath and have our life. Have our life. Let me give you a third argument. We have the curse of death, the breath of life, 1 Peter three fifteen. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So this series is predicated on the hope that we have in Christ and being able to share that hope with others. The truth is the hope that we find in the cross can indeed be traced back to creation. Here's our third argument. It's the hope of man. The fact that we have hope can show us that there is a literal and historical creation account we need to adhere to. And if we take that away, we lose some of our hope. Now, what is the hope of man, if I ask you that? Well, we've talked about this word already. The hope of man is the day of redemption. Like, ultimately, we're waiting for that glorious hope when we're caught away to Christ. True, we have been redeemed. Like, as I said, everything's been redeemed. The world's been redeemed. The world's just waiting for that redemption to be fully realized. You and I have been redeemed. We're made alive. We're new creations in Christ. We're forgiven. We're set apart. We're sanctified. We're just waiting for that day when our redemption is fully realized, when he takes us away to glory to be with him for all eternity, and we get out of this crazy world we live in. I, I'm, I think we're all just ready to go. Like, I go tomorrow. We talked earlier in Romans about the creation groaning in birth pains, waiting for that reality. Here's the truth. Here's what you need to know. So everyone has been redeemed, but not everyone has been saved. We often talk about ourselves as the redeemed. Let me tell you, the whole world's been redeemed. Christ died for the sins of everybody, set them free, forgave them, and has offered them the gift of salvation. But not everyone has been saved because salvation is a free will choice. It's like someone deposits $10 million into, your, into a bank account and puts your name on it. So you have $10 million in the bank. And let's just say you think, oh, I don't believe that. That's just phony. I don't trust that, you know. It's one of those Facebook scams. And so you just never access that money. But let's say that money is really yours. It's in your name. It's in a bank account. You just never choose to pull it out. That is your redemption. Christ has forgiven you and set you free. But you have to 
receive his forgiveness and you have to receive his life. I've always used the illustration about, from Romans 8 about an orphan, an orphanage. Like you're an orphan and you live in an orphanage. Think of, think of that great musical Annie, right? And you're in this orphanage and you're treated kind of like a slave and you scrub the floors and you're treated really terrible and along comes, you know, Daddy Warbucks, you know. The Heavenly Father comes along and says, I want to buy the freedom of everybody in this orphanage. And he pays the price for everybody's freedom and he sets them all free and says, I'll adopt you into my royal family and you can come and you can, you can be my children, not my slaves, you can be my children. <clears throat> and everybody who says yes will become a child of God, will go to, to, to live with him in glory, be adopted into his royal family. But if you, if you say no, you can stay at the orphanage and scrub floors. Everyone's been redeemed, but not everyone has been saved. Make sure you've been saved. Make sure you have said yes to Christ and you understand your spirit is dead. It needs to be regenerated and made alive again to God. It needs to be regenerated and made alive again to God. My salvation and adoption are a free will choice. 1 Corinthians 15, this is written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Christ. So what Paul is getting at here is there are two Adams. Jesus is the second Adam. Like the hope of my redemption is in this sense that, yeah, Jesus is the second Adam. There were two Adams. One Adam blew it. One Adam didn't. Hallelujah. Adam was the first man created and he sinned against God. He represents our earthly and our physical life. The second Adam is Jesus Christ. He came from heaven and was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He represents our heavenly and spiritual life. He's the one who redeemed us and regenerates us, makes us alive and sets us free. He makes our human spirit brand new so that my human spirit can now converse with God's Holy Spirit. The thing is, Jesus still came to earth as a man. He entered the world sinless and innocent just as the first Adam had. Unlike the first Adam, though, Jesus, the second Adam, never sinned, which means he could then be the redemptive sacrifice for us all. Here's the point. Both Adams are necessary to the gospel. The first Adam made the gospel necessary. The second Adam made the gospel possible. First Adam made, made the gospel necessary. The second Adam made it possible. You can be redeemed, regenerated, set free, and made alive. And this is where the literal Adam, this is why the Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 are literal historical beings. They're not metaphors. They're not part of some poem. Why? Why is it important that the first Adam is a metaphor? Because he is a parallel of the second Adam. And Jesus is a literal man. He's not just the second metaphor. He doesn't just represent new life or represent love or represent rebirth. Or rep he actually was a living human being who died and arose again and will give you life and make you physically and spiritually alive for all of eternity. Third thing about this hope we have, right? is just to understand this. Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. He was slain before the foundation of the world. We have to understand that. We've talked about this so many times here, but you can't miss in the original creation that God had planned our redemption all along. That God knew Adam and Eve would sin. He knew they would fall and he had planned ahead of time that he would redeem us. The fall, Adam and Eve's sin did not take us, did not, did not take him by surprise at all. He had made provision for it. Here it is in Revelations 13, 8. This is the literal standard version, most literal kind of reading of this scripture. Not always real comfortable, comfortable for, for our modern sensibilities, but, and all that dwell on the earth shall worship him, shall worship Satan, whose names are not written in the book of the life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. And Christ was slain from the foundation, before day one of creation, before God said, let there be light, before in the beginning, the lamb had been slain. You might say, how is that possible? Because Hebrews tells us God cannot lie. So if God says something's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. If God says something's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. When he said, I'm gonna send a redeemer and he's gonna die on the cross and set all of humanity free, you can, you can be guaranteed it was gonna happen. 
Absolutely, it's impossible for God to lie. And so it's interesting to watch how this predetermination plays itself out then in creation. Colossians 1.16 tells us, For by Him, for by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. We've talked about this many times too, right? Christ didn't just create all things, He holds all things together. He's keeping the atoms in your body from imploding. Every day. Every single day. That's why Acts, Paul, I've mentioned this a few times. Paul says this in Acts 17, 28. For in Him, Christ, we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Without Christ, in, you know, without Christ kind of like uh, keeping our atoms together and holding all things together in the universe, we would just implode and we would cease to exist. If God took his spirit out of us, we would what? We would return to dust. There is something going on there that is just mind-blowing to me. Mind-blowing to me. What's really interesting, though, is that there is this marker they have found in the body. There is this marker in the body. Maybe you've heard this before, and I'll touch on this briefly here. Something called laminin. Laminin. What is laminin? Well, I'll tell you what laminin is here from the National Library of Medicine. This is a real, this is hard to even read. Laminins are largely molecular weight glioproteins. Laminins are indispensable building blocks for the cellular networks physically, bridging the intercellular and extracellular compartments and relying signals critical for cellular behavior. And for the extracellular uh, polymers, determining the architecture and the physiology of basement membranes. So now you know what laminin is, right? Do you feel good? Right? I'll tell you what laminin is. Simplest way, laminin is the glue that holds your body together. It's the glue that's holding your body together. And we know that ultimately Christ is the one that's holding our body together. What's so fascinating is that, have you ever, have you ever heard this before and seen a picture of laminin? Now, now, to be honest, I'll show you the picture here, and this is just an artist's rendering. So this is where some people take issue with this illustration. I'll explain it in a minute here. But here is a picture, here is a picture, uh, like a, uh, a scientific picture of laminin that's in your body, that's holding your entire body together. Just saying. Now, here's the real thing. So it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's not quite as distinct, not quite as, but then you can kind of see, you almost see like somebody holding out their hands on a cross to embrace you. But there are different photos and they're not all quite as perfect, you know, and so some people say this is a poor illustration. I'll just say this, for some reason science, when they wanted to put together a diagram to illustrate what laminin is that's holding your entire body together, they chose, to, they chose on that. That's a God thing. That's like, that's what's holding your body together. This is what it looks like. This is how it works. Christ holds all things together. So we were, that was in Adam and Eve. That was in the first creation. God was already planning from the first creation the redemption that we know as Christ. Today's big idea, the Redeemer is seen in creation. He is. The one who has redeemed you is seen in creation. So briefly, let me leave you with this this morning. Finding the Redeemer in the cross. Three implications of a gospel-centered creation. Real simple. The breath of life is stronger than the curse of death. So yeah, God breathed the breath of life into us. Adam and Eve sin. We all die. Our spirit is dead to God. It's still keeping us alive because in Him we live and move and have our breathing, our being. But, but our spirit is now dead to God and we have no relationship with God. We have no fellowship with God. But then what does Christ do? Christ breathes new life into us again at the cross, right? He comes out of that grave. The Spirit of Christ comes out of that grave. And when he comes out of that grave, anybody who chooses to receive his life, he'll breathe life into you anew. And so the breath of life is stronger than the curse of death. Just hang on to that thought this morning. Just hang on to that simple thought. We mentioned Lazarus last week, right? When, when, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and how did he raise him from the dead? The same way he created all things. He said, Lazarus, come out. He spoke him back into existence. And one day God's gonna call us out of the, out of the graves at the great trumpet. He's gonna call all, all of those who have been made alive in him. He's gonna call us out of the graves to glory. 
When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out, the man who had come out. And he told Mary and and Martha that day, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Because the breath of life is greater than the curse of death. Second, Second argument here, God can create order out of the chaos in my life. God can create order out of the chaos. Do you ever feel like there's chaos in your life? you ever feel like your life's just like you're running a thousand miles uh, a day? you ever just feel like, man, it's just crazy? you ever, you ever look at the world around you and think, this, what happened to the world? I, what happened to the country I grew up in? Where's Mayberry? Where's Barney and Andy? Genesis 2.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And we would have looked at everything at that point and said, wow, that's chaos, that's disorder, that's a mess. God's like, no, that's everything I need to build a planet for you to live on so you can see me in the glory of creation, so you can see the invisible in the visible. God can bring order out of the chaos of our lives. And we may not always understand what's going on in life But let me just tell you, God is working. He's always working, and he can work order out of what seems like chaos. It's kind of like, you ever watch somebody paint a picture, right? And they take that brush, and they slab paint all over this big canvas, and you're watching them for like five minutes, and like, that's just a mess. And then all all of a sudden, it just like, in one brush stroke, it starts to turn. It's like, whoa, there's a picture there. Whoa. There's some intricacies there I didn't see. There's some depth in that. It's like, and when you're all done, you're like, whoa, wow, wow. And you're just amazed by what, and that's exactly God in creation, just God in creation. He brings beauty out of ashes, the Bible says in Isaiah. Today's big idea, again, the Redeemer is seen in the creation. And what he did in creation, understand he'll do again in your life when you put your faith and trust in him. He will breathe new life into you. He'll bring order out of the chaos of your life. He'll regenerate you and redeem you and set you free. Third, the character of the creator is witnessed in the scope of the creation. This is just so mind-blowing here. The character of the creator is seen in the scope of the creation. Throughout the Bible, we see a creator who is always defining himself by his creation. Whether it be the grandeur of the mountain, the power of the ocean tide, or the beauty of the seasons, or the wonder of a waterfall, we're always seeing the glorious, invisible God in the visible creation. It's amazing. Let me just close with letting Scripture speak for itself. Isaiah 40, this is what Rick read earlier. Let's listen to this. Why do you say, O Jacob, he didn't read this. He stopped here. So we're, we're picking up where Rick left off. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my night is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not feign or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the feign, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall feign and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The God who created all things by the word of his mouth and the breath of his spirit can breathe strength anew into your life. If if you ever feel like giving up, look up. If you ever, ever feel like giving in, look in to Christ right here. He is your hope. He is your redeemer. He is your creator. He is your savior. And just know this, he never grows tired and he never grows tired of helping you. The character of the creator is witnessed in the scope of the creation. One last passage. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Down in verse 11 here, Psalms 103, 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, as the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame, he remembers we are dust. He knows without his spirit in us, giving us life, animating us, giving us breath and all, we're just dust. He knows where we came from. 
And consider again, but what is the very essence of God? We always talk about this. The essence of God is his goodness and his glory, his love and his light. The essence of God is his love. God is love. And if God is infinite and spaceless and all-present, would it not make sense that his love would indeed reach as high as the heavens and his mercy as far as the east is from the west? The essence of the infinite, spaceless God is his love. And of course, so of course, his love reaches to the heavens and his mercy from east to west. It will consume you if you will allow it to. I'll close with this. God's love in the height of heaven from Sam Storms. David rejoices in the fact that God's steadfast love towards those who fear him can be illustrated by the height of the heavens above the earth. David was not an astronomer. He had no grasp on the unimaginable magnitude of the height to which he refers, but we do today. A good way to help us fathom the unfathomable is the light year. A light year is how far light travels in one calendar year. Light moves at 186,000 miles in one second. Multiply 186,000 times 60 seconds and you have a light minute. Multiply that figure by 60 minutes and you have a light hour. Multiply that figure by 24 and you have a light day and by 365 and you have a light year. So light can travel almost 6 trillion miles. That's the number 6 followed by 12 zeros in a 365 day period. That's the equivalent of about 12 uh, million round trips to the moon. Let's assume we are speeding in a jet airplane at 500 miles per hour on a trip to the moon. If we traveled nonstop 24 hours a day, it would take us just about three weeks to arrive at our destination. If we wanted to visit our sun 93 million miles from Earth, it would take us a bit more than 21 years to get there. And if we wanted to reach Pluto, the dwarf planet farthest away in our solar system, our nonstop trip would last slightly longer than 900 years. Now try to get your mind around this. The Hubble telescope has given us breathtaking pictures of a galaxy some 13 billion light years from Earth. That would put this galaxy 78 sextillion miles from the Earth. The number 78 followed by 21 zeros. If we are traveling 500 miles per hour nonstop, literally 52 weeks in every year with not a moment's pause, we would reach this galaxy in 20 quadrillion years. Number 20 followed by 15 zeros. And that would get us to the farthest point that our best telescopes have yet been able to detect. This would be the mere fringe of what lies beyond. It is currently estimated that there are around 2 trillion galaxies in the observable universe. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Wow. Let's pray and close with a song today. Father God, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the splendor of your creation that is, uh, of you that is seen in creation. Thank you, Lord, for the, for, for, for the, the redeemer that is seen in creation, for, the, for the, 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 just the height of your love, the depth of your grace, the length and width and breadth of your mercy. Thank you that you show us the invisible you and the visible creation. May we look for you May we, may we just read your word and just be captivated by what we read of how much you love us, how powerful you are, how great you are. May we understand that you never get tired and you never get tired of loving on us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's close today. Let's stand together and sing this song. In